You are listening to Waffle, the bite-sized podcast with Paul Jenkins. First broadcast on Rossendale Radio on the 10th of June, 2021. This week, Paul talks to actor Jeffrey Wiseman about his work before, during and after the Back to the Future films. Dedicated to the Rossendale Valley, this is your very own Rossendale Radio. Well, hello everybody and welcome back to 104.7 Rossendale Radio. Now, every week we speak to somebody who's involved in acting or directing or writing in some way and I have the absolute pleasure this afternoon, evening, whenever you happen to be listening to this, to introduce to you the amazing Jeffrey Wiseman. Good afternoon, Jeffrey. How are you doing? Amazing. (laughs) <laughs> where else are you calling us from in the world i'm up uh, uh i'm the northern part of california on the west coast which officially makes you the furthest guest we've ever had away from the rossendale radio studio we we had somebody call us in from new york a few weeks back and i gave him a certificate but i feel like you've nabbed it off him oh lucky me all right yeah, I was gonna uh, say. and then if i come back i'll, I'll just broadcast from the next room over and that'll be uh, make me even further that's absolutely fine. I mean, if if we want to play some sort of Python-esque game of uh, of, uh, of of grab the certificate each week, we'll, we'll go for it. Um, uh, now, listen, Jeffrey. I mean, I could read your resume uh, to you. Uh, I think you know it by now. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll let our listeners uh, be fully aware of uh, because they'll they'll have kind of pigeonholed you as one thing, but actually a much wider film career. Um, you started working in film in the mid seventies. Worked in dozens of film and TV productions. Uh, George Miller's Nightmare at 30,000 Feet, which was uh, from the Twilight Zone movie. Uh, he worked on Pale Rider with Clint Eastwood. Um, but I think our listeners will probably know you best uh, for a certain film called Back to the Future 2 and Back to the Future 3. Um, do you want to tell us about how on earth all of all of that came together? What got you started in that crazy world of movies? It's a, it's a three-hour story. Uh <laughs> I, got two minutes. I okay in two minutes. Well, I I was born an actor, stayed an actor, and still an actor. There we go. <laughs> well, that was that was nice and concise. Thank you. I, uh, it's, I, I, I mean, I, I, wanting to attack. Is, you started in theatre and then and then sort of graduated into film and television. Is that ha- how it happened. I I actually had I'd started uh, in in school. Mm. Uh, entertaining, you know, sort of as the class clown, of course, uh, and at home in my, with my family, I did a lot of uh, role playing with my my sister, and uh, we were we grew up sort of around uh, celebrity and Hollywood scene because my my father had managed our own different private clubs where actors like Omar Sharif and uh, uh, Lauren Green and or uh, Don Adams were were playing cards or backgammon at his clubs. And we'd often go see associates of his, uh, their films, you know, he's, he's at my club and so on and so forth. And they, he'd, he'd even get advice from some of these stars for me, because I had said from early on, I wanted to be an actor. They didn't want me to become an actor. So I, I really couldn't uh, do much outside of school. I so I, I was doing stage and film with my friends. We, uh, a buddy of mine, uh, was friends with uh, the maker of the ape masks from Planet of the Apes, and we got our hands on some and <laughs> made little ape movies in junior high. And and then uh, other film filmmaker friends of mine in in high school uh, continued making films. And forty five years later, we're still doing it. 
It's, I was going to say, you're still very much involved with the film scene, whether it be looking back at some of your previous work or or still involved with the... I know you were very much involved with the, the kind of directing for theme parks and, and some of the stuff to do with Universal, and I think we'll, we'll get onto that a little bit later on. Uh, but of course, as I mentioned, uh, you know, I'm sitting here as, as the fanboy. I'm in my DeLorean T-shirt with my Back to the Future poster and my Back to the Future mug in front of me. What is that? Um, it, it's... Uh, it, it's quite a thing. How do you deal with the fact that there are fanboys out there that are constantly wanting your attention and telling telling you that they they want that particular piece of you? Let me tell you, future boy, <laughs> uh, you you're not alone. Uh, there, the trilogy, which is now considered, I guess, one of the top ten trilogies of all time, mm-hmm. uh, is is such a, a classic that it keeps getting rediscovered by new generations. And, uh, you know, that's thrilling for me. Uh, technically, I shouldn't have really anything to do with those films, maybe playing a cowboy in part three or something. But uh, <laughs> I, uh, in fact, I was, I was very good friends. Well, not very good friends, but I'd, I'd worked with and thought I was friends with Crispin Glover, who originated the role of George. Mm. Uh, I'd done a film with him in 83 before, before he got the first film uh, with Daniel Hurley. Uh, over at the American Film Institute, and I had Crispin's number. And, and when the Back to the Future came out in '85, of course, I went to see it. I wanted to know what the competition for the Clint Eastwood Western I was doing, Pale Rider, that came out the same year, was like. And as soon as I saw Crispin on the the screen, I was like, I know him. Hey, he's, he's doing an incredible job, knocking it out of the park. And uh, for all intents and purposes, you know, he should have been there in the s- sequels. I uh, remember reading at the time in 88 when they were putting the team back together uh, in Variety and Hollywood Reporter, the headlines were uh, back to the bank. <laughs> you know, they've, oh. they, they've gotten, they've thrown enough money at Chris Lloyd and, and Michael J. Fox and Leah Thompson, everyone to come back to reprise their roles. And then a month or so after reading that headline, I got a call from an agent who asked if I knew who Crispin, Crispin was. And I said, of course I do. And he wanted to know if I was the same height and weight. And I said, no, <laughs> but what's going on? And they, he said they were looking for a photo double for him for oh, the scene. Right? Yeah, actually, he couldn't tell me the, the name of the project. Mm. It's, NDA, it, early NDA. And, it must and have said, been such a, 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 a tricky thing to, to kind of step into those shoes. The film was already iconic by the time that the sequel came around. In, it was released in 89, but, you know, as you say, in 1988, there was, there was already a kind of zeitgeist around the film. Yeah, it was the it was the largest grossing film of 1985. So naturally, I was like, uh, I could use some stand-in work. I don't mind being a photo double. I might I have to pay for my second child's birth coming up. <laughs> uh, and then I started going to auditions after meetings with assistant directors, and then uh, fittings for prosthetic makeups and body casts for special effects and uh, screen tests with. Uh, Dean Cundy, the cinematographer, and uh, Robert Zemeckis. And Bob Z said to Dean, what do you think? And Dean said, I think we got Crispin without the trouble, which was like, huh? <laughs> um, just a second, I got to let my cat out. Yeah, you know what? I, I, this is what I love about radio is that um, I, I have this. I'm contending with a cat myself at this end of the Atlantic. I'm, I'm loving the fact that Jeffrey Wiseman has currently gone off screen uh, so that he can also deal with a cat uh, that is also being troublesome. This is the way that live radio is supposed to work. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I wonder if you, yours is as troublesome as mine, then. 
he's he's getting in his dotage. He's he's got his own IMDb, by the way. I got him a small part in a, a horror film that I did a cameo in, and I insisted that my cat get a full credit. So if you look up his full name, Ramsey's Cat Hotep Kitty Uncommon, you'll find him on IMDb. Well, we'll look for him. We'll make sure that we give him appropriate credits uh, when we do this as a podcast. This will be fine. Um, <laughs> uh, now, uh, uh, we can we can wax lyrical about Back to the Future all day, and, and I think we will continue to. Um, but we always ask our guests to choose uh, some of the playlists for us. Oh, uh, sure. You've chosen three tracks for us. Uh, and we're going to uh, start by talking um, a little bit about Snakefinger, if that's all right. Uh, do you want to tell us why you've chosen this particular track? Uh, uh, Michael, uh, uh, Snakefinger is the artist's name. Mm. And uh, unfortunately, he he uh, died past uh, too young, too soon, and he was hot on the San Francisco music scene, underground music scene, late seventies, early eighties. And I uh, have always been a fan since, gosh, I was young. Since I saw my first Fellini film of the music that Fellini used, uh, usually written by Nino Rota, and of course, I was in uh, like you, I was DJing. Uh, uh, punk clubs and new wave clubs uh, back in those days and Snakefinger's second album he featured a cover of a Nino Rota tune from Juliet of the Spirits and so I thought that was very uh, novel uh, looking back or listening back to it it's not as good as the original <laughs> um, well, I guess most covers aren't well I take that back some some covers go beyond um, I was I was just listening to the shaken and stirred because I was bending uh, binging all the James Bond movies, mm. and there's a great uh, compilation called Shaken and Stirred where you know people like Bjork cover You Only Live Twice and and various other fantastic artists cover Bond songs and they do better than some of the originals. But I digress. Snakefinger uh, was associated with uh, Ralph Records and uh, the Residents were a, a, a group of esoteric avant-garde uh, musicians that uh, play behind screens or with disguises on giant eyeballs on their head or what have you. So no one knows who they are, but Snakefinger would perform with them and uh, record with them and he would be out. So you could actually see who someone really looked like. <laughs> well, I, 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 it, well, I've now got the image of, of giant eyeballs uh, uh, performing for me. I, I'll, I'll try and keep that in my head as we have a listen. This is Snakefinger. Frequency 104.7. The area. Rossendale Valley. The station. Rossendale Radio. Welcome back to 104.7 Rossendale Radio. Paul Jenkins here, and I'm talking to my guest, Jeffrey Wiseman, who's calling us all the way from the East Coast, West Coast, West Coast of the United States of America. My geography is terrible. Um, and uh, we, we are, of course, in the midst of talking uh, about Back to the Futures 2 and 3. Um, I mean, what was the filming experience like? I mean, we, you've, you've kind of got past that moment of going, right, I'm on set now. This is this is happening. Uh, and I'm, I'm part of what is going to be one of the biggest franchises in the history of cinema. Has that experience of, of getting in there and, and being, a, being around a cast that, of course, have, have worked together on the first movie and getting involved in that whole production? Well, uh, just as you say, it was uh, pretty uh, awesome. It, uh, I was uh, pinching myself, saying, well, "What? What am I doing here?" But you know, I was filling, of course, very big shoes. I, in my mind, they, I thought they needed uh, George in multiple places at the same time. And when I learned that they didn't have George, I couldn't fathom how they were going to make the film without him. 
but we did. And uh, it was very hard work uh, that many of the uh, 2015 McFly home scenes, the shoots were incredibly long. Mm-hmm. Uh, one week, my time card had a 19 hour day, a 21 hour day, a 26 hour long day. And of course, <laughs> and it's 26 time. hours in one day. That's, that's good work. Yeah. Uh, and it was hanging upside down. And often yeah. we had less than eight hours before I had to be back in the makeup trailer, you know, to, to get the prosthetics up back on. Uh, so it was grueling. It was very hard work, but at the same time, incredibly exciting. And I'm, I'm in the company of uh, the finest crew people and the one of the finest casts assembled for storytelling that I think Universal ever put together. And uh, it it uh, was thrilling for me. Of course, it was it was odd. I, you know, at first, uh, Mike Fox didn't know what to think of me, and and Leo always uh, kind of was standoffish, and mm-hmm. uh, um, and even the director would refer to me as Crispin. Uh, it was <laughs> odd. Um, <clears throat> but finally, after you know a week or so into it, people realized it was not Crispin, and that I'm a pretty nice guy and working my <laughs> tail off. So. Uh, it did, became a good good working situation. Of course, uh, when I learned that the producers didn't have uh, the actor's permission to use his likeness when we uh, redid all the uh, Enchantment Under the Sea dance and fighting Biff scenes, you know, I'm in this young old age, a young age makeup uh, based off his life mask. Um, I was kind of furious, and and Crispin, sure enough, after Part Three came out, contacted me. Like I said, we were friends. Uh, and he told me the sad story and how he got uh, wronged, and I agreed with him. And so my uh, helping him with photos and stories helped him get his out-of-court settlement of three-quarter million dollars. Yeah. it's. Uh, I mean, it is a, a very tricky thing uh, in terms of, and uh, obviously it's, it's, it's well documented now, that the kind of legalities around that, that whole thing. Uh, sort of part of things it's it's one of those things about hollywood that, that that sometimes actors are simply not available or don't want to be available for for different projects and I suppose I was, with, a, with a juggernaut like back to the future it's hard to to stop it rolling at the same time you can sort of see it from both sides but I, I, as right, an actor I, it must be really hard i assumed that he had another project that he couldn't get out of uh and it wasn't until much later that i understood that they were lowballing him on a, a, a money figure that at the time, his star was rising, so yeah. he obviously thought he was worth much more. And he also, I believe, was asking for script approval. Mm. Um, so, so it was very complexified. And you know, just a week or so ago, I was looking at my script. Uh, both part two and three are in the same mm. script called Paradox. And for those scenes that George is in in the 2015 era. Uh, there's about a half dozen rewrites, and in fact, one of the rewrites. Marty is the one hanging upside down in the ortho left. Oh, right. Yeah, they were trying to prepare for any kind of situation that was coming. Yeah, uh, I mean that's. I mean that scene in particular, the one in the in the 2015 McFly house. I mean that was actually quite a groundbreaking scene in terms of cinema, anyway, in the way that Industrial Light and Magic were using multiple versions of Michael Fox. Uh, 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 I was going to say I don't know what to call him. For us, he's Michael J. Fox. For you, he's Mike. What do we call him? <laughs> Uh, all, all of the above. All of the above. I'll, I'll just call him Mr. Fox. <laughs> but how, how was that to film from so many different angles? Well, the, the uh, first of all, the, the camera that we used was the uh, cutting edge at the time, of course. I, I, mm. I think it may have been even a prototype because uh, the Tondro system that ran it, it was the VistaVision Panaflex, 
uh, was able to splice the film inside the camera. Mm. So when Mike is playing Marlene, my granddaughter, and Marty Jr., my grandson, and my son Marty, passing the iced tea to each other, yeah. uh, we had to be very precise and locked down after we blocked the movements. We had to lock that down and be and not deter from it at all uh, because that splicing, the editing, was going on inside the camera. It's amazing. And we would also have to wait three-plus hours for the makeup and costume changes. And uh, it, it was very, very uh, specific, detailed, uh, and like I said, locked down. And one night uh, during the shoot, we had had an earthquake. And oh, really? Because of the uh, delicate nature of the situation, uh, Zemeckis thought he may have to start all over on the scene. And luckily, he figured out how to get around it, probably with an edit or something. It sounds like, uh, I would imagine props and even from a continuity point of view, things just v vaguely moving slightly to the left in the background would have caused huge chaos in the scene, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. There, there were, and the beauty of watching Robert Zemeckis work was that he was really a problem solver. He was very com competent in casting extremely fine actors and having a great crew behind him who were thinking ahead always, mostly. And, and, <laughs> and he was... Uh, Mainly they're solving problems and mm. we had plenty of them come up. I, I talked with him about, you know, the, the complexifications on working with the animators uh, on uh, who framed Roger rabbit and the possible mm. sequel. And, and uh, he, he claimed that he had more complicated sh shots on back to the future than he ever did on who framed Roger rabbit, which I thought was surprising, but you know, looking back at all the flying DeLorean. We're going to take a break for some music. Um, now this oh. is a, this is again, going along the film soundtrack, uh, uh, sort of, uh, road. Uh, you've, you've chosen temptation, heaven 17, which is a great track in itself, but of course I, it's one of my favorite tracks in the train spotting soundtrack. Um, why, why, temp, why, why heaven 17? Oh, I thought the temptation on that soundtrack was the new order version. Uh, so heaven 17, I'm fans of both, uh, bands. I'd like mm. I was a big fan of Joy Division before, you know, Ian uh, hung himself and and thus wanted to keep up with the band, wasn't sure if they were going to continue on. And when they did as New Order, uh, Temptation was one of my favorite early songs of theirs. Um, then uh, Heaven 17 came out of my uh, enjoyment of uh, early Human League, which then, you know, fractured off into different bands like, uh, well, Human League and Heaven 17. And I was one of them went to Depeche Mode. Anyway, um, I, I just, I love, you know, both those bands and both those songs with the same title. Uh, I'm not sure which one you're going to play. I, I'm going to play Heaven 17 because it's one of my favorites. Uh, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's uh, that whole sort of synth pop uh, in that in that early 80s uh, time was uh, was just uh, fantastic. So uh, yeah, we're going to play. Theatrical. It's, it's theatrical and builds and has a climax and is thrilling. And you, I can't help but get up and want to dance. It's a great dance tune. Here it is. At home, in the office, in the car, wherever you are. You can listen to 104.7 Rossendale Radio. I really want to um, love to touch on the, the kind of uh, the Stan Laurel stuff and the, the Chaplin work. And uh, um, we can debate about whether Buster Keaton has, has any role in it. Uh, Buster Keaton, I couldn't find any work in there, but I'm, I'm finding it hard to believe that you're not doing some. Bear in mind that you're focusing so much on Stan Laurel and Chaplin that you're also not a Buster Keaton fan. <laughs> Oh, I'm a I'm a huge Buster Keaton fan. Right. I, in fact, I I went to Eleanor, his his widow's home, and uh, she showed me how she would fold his hat, 
taking a Stetson and, and soak it in sugar water and then fold it uh, in the round shape for his pork pie hat. Uh, no, I, uh, you probably from my bio see the Stan Laurel and Charlie Chaplin and Groucho Marx because those are characters that I played uh, starting in 1987 for uh, Universal Studios in Hollywood on the tour. So, I'm, I'm wondering at some point or another, because I did that tour in 89, um, I, when we went out there with my family, and uh, uh, I'm wondering whether I, uh, we've, we've, we've crossed paths <laughs> somewhere or another in a parade. <laughs> right. It, well, if you, if you took a, a photo with Laurel and Hardy, it I more than likely was the Stanley. I was their number one Stanley for 15 years. Uh, I was the Charlie Chaplin often uh, opening for the Western stunt show. And then, Groucho Marx driving around in the Model A and, and the big wheel bike, you know, the penny farthings. So uh, you, it's very possible you saw my work. And then uh, I directed a couple shows, opening of the billion dollar theme park that Universal opened in Japan in Osaka. And I trained all the uh, lookalike characters there, the Clark Gables, Marilyn Monroe's Doc Brown, and uh, had props fabricated and brought over from the States to Japan as well. Uh, I saw that no one was really training the bodysuit characters, the uh, Snoopies and, and uh, uh, who else was out there? Woody Woodpeckers and, and so on and so forth, uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle, uh, the, <laughs> the Japanese kids who were doing the uh, bodysuit characters mm. uh, were not being trained who the characters were that they were portraying and, and thus weren't doing the behaviors that those characters were known for in the, in the cartoons. So I, you know, uh, Amazon was relatively new and I was finding VHS uh, <laughs> tapes of all these cartoons. So I could show them Betty Boop and uh, uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle and so on and so forth. And, and they were thrilled. And also I, since I had so many years of the in park experience in Hollywood, trained them on safety and uh, proper protocol with greeting guests and making sure that you had a safe photo op uh, and training their handlers because none of the suits as it were the executives really bothered training these, these kids and, and their handlers. And so I added to my six day a week job uh, for that project. But then again, I think the live interaction with the performers may be cut in some of the, those spots mm -hmm. due to the COVID. Yeah, it's going to take us a while. I mean, we are sort of taking those baby steps back. Our theatres are opening again soon. Uh, and of course, to bring things full circle, uh, Back to the Future Musical is about to uh, reopen in London. Um, I had right. the pleasure of being able to see the world premiere here in Manchester. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, now, I, and I, I feel a little bit uh, that, that somehow I managed to get one up on the rest of the cast because I know that many of the uh, many of you were, were due to see it was due to transfer to Broadway at some point or another. And uh, and of course, I know some of you were planning on coming over here. Um, uh, did you have any kind of uh, input into or sort of inkling about what was coming with the musical before it as a project? I, I, uh, about, um, gosh, what was it? Uh, 2015. So in about 2014. 2013, 2014, uh, I uh, went to probably my 10th DeLorean owners show. Yeah. Uh, the DeLorean <laughs> uh, owners car shows uh, are well attended. Uh, I've gone to uh, uh, as a guest and as a host and MC and auctioneer to many of their shows. And in uh, Ohio, I think it was, um, I was at a show, the first one I think Christopher Lloyd came to 
and Bob Gale came to it. And at that show in particular, a local high school, their senior production was a Back to the Future musical. And they got back together, even though they had all graduated or a majority of the cast had graduated. They got back together and performed 20 minutes of that musical for us at that DeLorean car show. And I, I, I could just see the light going on in Bob Gale's head. You know, either he may have thought about it already, but here it was proof in the pudding because it was an incredibly moving. It was so emotional and so well done that this high school musical theater teacher had written this thing and got these kids to act their butts off. And it was fantastic. And there were tears. And then Harry Waters Jr., who played Marvin Berry, Chuck's cousin in the film, he was at that show, too. And he got up and and sang Earth Angel to a couple who had just gotten engaged. Uh, you know, it was tears all around. It was really lovely. And uh, and I know that you've got that friendship ongoing. I mean, obviously, there's the Comic-Con circuit, et cetera, that you guys do. But you and Harry, uh, and I think uh, Claudia's, uh, Claudia Wells has, has done quite a few of these things as well. The, the, the gang still get back together every now and again, don't they? Well, yeah, we uh, just, in fact, returned from a, our first in-person fan con in Florida, in Pensacola, Pensacon. So it was great to see Harry and Don and Claudia. Um, we've been friends for many years since the first reunion or even before that I knew Claudia um, in 2008 and uh, Harry and Don are also in a band I put together for the Back to the Future cruise for the anniversary year in 2015 uh, to raise money for Michael's uh, Team Fox you know the Parkinson's Foundation and I had uh, Mark McClure who played Dave McFly on drums uh, Don Folove who played uh, Mayor Goldie Wilson on bass I play guitar Harry of course is our singer uh, and uh, we are hoping, you know, Ricky Dean Logan, who was part of uh, Griff's hoverboard gang, joins us on keyboard sometime. Leah has said that, you know, if things go right, she might sing, you know, Mr. Sandman with us, as well as Claudia, who who has uh, experience as an opera singer. Um, so, you know, and, and, and McCain, she'd like to sing with us, too. And she, you know, played Stella Baines, Lorraine's mm. mom. Well, if you need a second drummer, I'm available. So that's that's oh, perfectly fine. I'll, I'm, what did you do in the movie? Pardon? No, I, 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 <laughs> I said, what, what role did you play? Oh, you weren't born oh, yet. Sorry, no, I, you forget. I was the guy behind the Cadillac in the in the in the in the in the in the in the, uh, in the scene in the parking lot. It was. Oh, fantastic! All right, yeah. you're on board. Yeah, definitely. I looked a lot different then. I was a lot younger. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're on uh, uh, someone's knee. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I would love to shoehorn my. There's a lot of uh, ways I would love to shoehorn myself into the Back to the Future trilogy, but um, I'm afraid it's just not possible. Um, we are going to uh, uh, bring this to a close, uh, not before you give us your final music choice. Um, and uh, it's very much around uh, influence from Brian Eno uh, is your final final choice this afternoon. Um, and uh, and I think you've chosen Deep Blue Day, uh, which is another train spotting track. <laughs> Yes, I, I uh, wanted to keep it cinematic since the, the, we're talking movies here, and I'm a huge Eno fan and, and actually friends with a collaborator of his, uh, Hans Joachim Rodelius, who was one of the original members of Cluster that he uh, did two of his best albums with. Well, it's a, it's a fantastic way to finish the show, a very chilled and mellow way to finish the show this evening. Um, right. Thank you so much uh, for spending time with us today. And uh, and we'll be back in contact about this gig that we're doing on a cruise somewhere. Oh, I love it. Love it. And, you know, people can follow me on Twitter. Uh, uh, and do, do you want me to give you those handles or? 
let's do it. Let's let's give it give us all of the Twitter, Instagram, the the Facebook, sure. the social media, the lot. Uh, on uh, Twitter, it's at J E F one F Weisman W E I S S M A N. On Instagram, it's at Jeffrey J Weisman J E F F R E Y J W E I S S M A N. On Facebook, my fan page is at Jeffrey Weisman Actor. Uh, JeffreyWeissman.com, uh, which needs updating desperately. Uh, you can reach me as well. If anyone needs a, a, an autographed photo for the Back to the Future fan in your life or Pale Rider or other work that I've done, uh, just email me there and I'll give you the details how to get that. That's that's a man who's done that little spiel quite a few times. Um, Jeffrey Weissman, thank you so much for your time. Um, oh, Paul, it's been a treat. Thank you. Uh, this is Brian Eno. 104.7 Rossendale Radio. And there you have it. Another Waffle the Bite-Sized podcast comes to an end. And what an honour it was to be able to speak with George McFly himself, Mr. Jeffrey Wiseman, all about uh, his work, uh, both on film and on uh, working in theme parks. And of course, uh, I got to wax lyrical about Back to the Futures 2 and 3. Uh, a bit of a lifelong dream, that one. So uh, thank you very much, Jeffrey. It was absolutely brilliant. Uh, if you want to listen to any other of the podcasts that we have, just go to the Play It Again section of the Rossendale Radio website, or of course, you can search online for Waffle the Bite Size podcast. We'll be back with you with another great author next week. In the meantime, I just want to say thank you very much to our colleagues at 104.7 Rossendale Radio for allowing us to broadcast each week. And of course, to Melanie Kemp for all of her brilliant work producing Waffle the Bite Size podcast. We'll see you again soon.